No, just another bald man up here today. I'm not Deepak Reju. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. You know this passage. As you know, like a father with his own children, we encouraged, comforted, and implored each one of you to live worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Uh, it's my privilege to introduce our next speaker. I, uh, years ago, served on staff with him. He's for... I believe for 16 years now, has served as associate pastor for biblical counseling and families at the Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C. He is, he reminds me of this passage. Uh, I saw it uh, so many times and it made such a deep impression on me. I'm so thankful for your ministry. I love you. Let's welcome Brother Deepak Reju. Well, I have the dreaded post-lunch slot, the slot that all preachers fear. Uh, what, how well we have been fed this morning from our brothers. And then what great hospitality from North Shore. So thank you for your sweetness to all of us. I'm going to attempt to move my arms, use my voice, keep you awake. Uh, if you sleep, I won't be offended. <laughs> But let me just pray as we get started. Lord, the, um, the task of being a shepherd and the opportunity to care for your sheep is a privilege. And so as we take opportunity now to consider what that means for us, help us, Lord, in our time. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. So it's Tuesday morning and you're whittling away at your inbox and you get a phone call. It's a wife in a troubled marriage and she tells you over the next 30 minutes about the difficulties that's going on in her marriage. And as she vents and she cries and she complains, you hear the troubles of her life. And so you set up an appointment the very next morning to talk to her. As a pastor, you hear the cries often of the sheep who are hurting. Christians who are struggling with difficulties and sin and suffering is a common part of your work. Just consider the list of things you encounter, stubborn depression, heart-wrenching adultery, volcanic anger, chronic miscommunication, guilt-ridden pornography struggles, calorie-phobic eating disorders, recurrent cancer, hidden same-sex attraction, suicidal thinking, and that's just the short list. Life in a fallen world is full of misery. The work of caring for God's people is not easy. Pastors often say to me, counseling and pastoral care is the hardest part of my work. Why is it any surprise you go through a 90-credit-hour MDiv degree, and what do they give you? Usually one class in pastoral care. And then you get into your first year of ministry, and it all comes at you. Well, all those troubles come at you from every direction. And you're thinking, what on earth am I going to do? So in the first few years of ministry, pastors are forced into the crucible of other people's problems with little or no training, and it's a trial under, it's a trial by fire under the heat and pressure of pastoral ministry. You figure out on your own what to do. Well, here's my goal in our time together. This is a message to help you think about the pastor's shepherd. So this is a word to shepherds about shepherding. Now, do you know how to tell a shepherd? He's dirty, smelly, sweaty, and bloodstained because he spent time with the sheep. 
Shepherding is hard work. It's not for the faint-hearted or for the man who's captivated by fear. So my prayer for you is that you'll be encouraged with the task of faithfully shepherding alongside and underneath the great under-shepherd. As you serve as an under-shepherd for the chief of all shepherds, Jesus Christ. There's seven things I want to say to you in our time together. Seven things. Number one, consider Jesus the chief shepherd. Two key words, condescension and sympathy. First, condescension. People riddle this word with negative connotations, but what an appropriate thing to say about Jesus. Jesus condescended to us. Philippians chapter 2. In humility, count others better than yourselves. Verse 3. And Christ humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. Verse 8. The Lord existed on a plane above us, lived in perfect fellowship with the Father and the Spirit, and with no sin and suffering that plagued him, he came down and he dwelt among us. He put our interests ahead of himself, humbling himself, being willing to face the greatest of all problems, death itself. So Jesus condescended to us. That's condescension. Now sympathy. Christ put himself in a position to sympathize with suffering people. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Jesus faced a sin-plagued world, and unlike us who give in to temptations, he faced the full force of life's temptations. The sinless one never gives in. So one of my favorite commentators, Leon Morris, has said about Jesus, the sinless one knows the force of the temptation in a way that we who sin do not. We give in before the temptation has fully spent itself. Only he who does not yield knows its full force. So Jesus gets it much better than we do. He understands to a degree that's inconceivable to us because he faced the full force of the temptation in a way that we never will. Now, can I confess something? I hate double negatives. They confuse the living daylights out of me. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. What does that mean? Positively speaking, we have a high priest who does sympathize. You know how many times I had to read the text to figure that out? (laughs) We have a high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because Jesus understands the full force of the temptation. He can sympathize with what we're going through. Do you want to be like Jesus? Well, sympathize with your people. You want to be like Jesus? Sympathize with everything that they're going through. Like Jesus, who is willing to condescend to us, and who face the full force of the temptations, so also we need to wade into the troubles of our sheep, the sheep that God has entrusted to us. What we do, we do because Jesus took initiative first and came to sinners and sufferers like us. Number two, our responsibility, to shepherd God's flock. Turn with me to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 5. The Apostle Peter writes, verses 1 to 4, 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive an unfading crown of glory. So Peter's writing to Christians who are enduring suffering and are fighting for faith. He has written encouraging the believers and testifying this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. That's verse 12 in chapter 5. In chapter 5, Peter makes an appeal to the elders in the churches in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Interesting that he didn't use his credentials as an apostle, but appeals as a fellow elder. In verse 1, I'm an elder just like you, he says. This is how we as shepherds carry ourselves and care for others. Yet, he's not too far from reminding him that he is also an apostle as a witness of the sufferings of Christ. He was there when Christ was crucified. Peter says, this very one that we are all going to see one day, I have seen him crucified. Peter will also share in the glory to be revealed. Suffering precedes glory. Suffering precedes glory. This is our hope that after suffering, glory will come. Peter holds out this hope to these Christians who are suffering, that their suffering will not end in futility. Now, on the basis of three things, an appeal as a fellow elder, as a personal witness of the sufferings of Christ, as one who will share in the glory to be revealed, he gets to his main point there in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. His goal is to encourage you to be shepherds. Don't think of those effeminate little statues in your Christian bookstore on, on those Christian cards. No, actually, shepherding is dirty, manly work. It might require the shepherd to occasionally kill a bear or a lion in order to protect the sheep. As elders, you're called to shepherd the flock of God. You are under shepherds entrusted with God's sheep. What an immense privilege. What a privilege to work for the king of kings, for the greatest of all shepherds, to shepherd the flock he's entrusted to you. The sheep belong to the chief shepherd, and he turns to you and says, take care of my sheep. As under-shepherds, you carry the weighty responsibility of caring for God's own. We work on behalf of God and care for what is God's. What a precious stewardship. Do you see the care of God's sheep as a burden or a privilege? Many of us have been in that position when an email hits your inbox or a message, your voicemail, and if you're like me, you groan. Because you know the situation. You've spent hours with them. You, you feel the burden even as you look at the email thinking, here we go again. We, we've been through this not just one time or 10 times or 20 times, but for some cases, years. 
years upon years upon years of toil and painstaking toil to labor on their behalf to help them understand who God is and what Christ has done for them. And yet, there it is again. They're struggling, and they're in trouble yet again. A weak sheep wants your attention. And after hours and days and weeks and months and years, your care for them has become a chore. Love turns into hard labor, patience into impatience, and frustrations mount. Maybe you're more godly than I am. I wonder if you can relate. I wonder if you've been in that position. This is when you remind yourself, these are God's children. These are God's sheep. They're not mine. They were entrusted to me. This is God's flock, not my own. God himself, the great creator and redeemer of the universe, has asked me, has asked me of all people to care for them. Oh, brothers, care for the lost souls on behalf of the one who can care for them better than you could ever care for them. God says, I will love them. I will tend to them. I will rescue them. I will comfort them. I will feed them. I will bind them up and I will protect them. Verse three, the participle, exercising oversight, qualifies the verb shepherd. You're charged to tend to, protect, guide, feed, teach, call, exhort, comfort, bind up, and encourage the sheep. Shepherding and oversight are the two most basic functions of a pastor. This is a fundamental part of what a pastor is expected to do with his time. Now, in light of the preceding section, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, Peter is making an appeal to the elders to consider the great suffering of the believers that are among you in verse 2. These people need a pastor's help, and your job is to shepherd the Christians who are suffering in this fallen world, reminding them of truth and encouraging them to cling to the truth. Now, verses 2 and 3, Peter then sets up three contrasts. With each contrast, on one side stands a ditch, so don't fall in that ditch, and on the other side is an aspirational goal, what you need to shoot for. Peter says three times, not this, but that. He starts with the elders who work not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. You should not shepherd your members out of a sense of obligation, out of a sense of compulsion, but shepherd because you've chosen to pursue this. Do you feel like your ministry is characterized by obligation rather than joy? Do you feel freely and willingly to give your life to pastor God's flock because you know this is what God wants you to do. Peter adds his second phrase, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So Peter's warning, be careful that your motivation is not for dishonest gain, greed, or self-interest. Rather, he encourages you to shepherd with eagerness. It's not just that you're willing, but you desire to do it. Now, I'm a child of the 84 NIV, for excuse me, quoting the NIV. It's taboo 
in ESV reform circles, but here we go. The NIV translators appropriately add the word to serve to draw out the contrast. Your motivation as a pastor is not self-gain, but an earnest eagerness to serve God's people. Which one describes you better? Oh, that God would root out all of my self-serving tendencies, that he'd get rid of all of it, not a single bit of it remain, that I might serve faithfully, that I might serve with eagerness, not just willing, but I really want to do this, to serve God's people. And I pray the same for you. Third phrase there, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. In any position of authority, there is a danger of the pastor abusing those under his care. The term domineering implies a leadership style that's harsh, excessively restrictive, and flaunting power. Abusive authority in any form is wrong and evil. And it lies about the very God whom we have chosen to serve. Don't ever abuse others and use your privileged position to abuse the sheep that God has entrusted to you. Now, now, the news is rampant with the problems in churches with abusive authority. And we do not want to be those among those who are in the reports and saying, yet another pastor who is messed up. Instead of domineering, Peter talks about church members looking at the life of an elder and following his example. Throughout Scripture, the apostle calls on believers to imitate their way of life and their faith. For you as a pastor... Living a life worthy of imitation is not optional. It's a part of the job. It's a fundamental part of what you signed up for when you stepped into pastoral ministry. Have you or your spouse or your children ever felt the pressure of constantly living as an example? Have you ever struggled with being under the microscope of church members? Have you ever felt the pressure of being up front regularly? You ever felt the pressure, or even kids talk about, the pressure of being in pastoral ministry? Well, we have. We certainly have. And that's hard, but it's a necessary part of the job. Peter ends by pointing the elders to the chief shepherd, Jesus. When the chief shepherd appears, the elders will receive an unfading crown of glory. When Christ finally returns your heavenly reward comes. This is your eschatological motivation. This is why we're working so hard. One day when we get to glory, we'll be there and he'll say, well done. You, you've served faithfully. This is what you get at the end if you're, you're faithful to your calling, Peter says. Are you looking forward to that one day? Often, we're so knee-deep in the mud of other people's troubles, we, of all people, lose sight of the end. Of all people, we should have the end in focus and let the end of the story affect what I'm doing right now. So there will be a day where the crown of glory is held out to him and said, you have served faithfully as an under-shepherd. Thank you. 
thank you for serving faithfully now and keeping your eye on the end of the story because one day we'll get there. Number three, the goal of our shepherding, maturity in Christ. Maturity in Christ is the goal. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil with all energy that he powerfully works within me. Or Ephesians 4, 11 to 13, it was he who gave some to the apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. What a delight it is to see people grow up in Christ. It's not just helping the weak, but shepherding every member to maturity in Christ. That's the goal. Do you agonize over the sanctification of your people? Do do you pray for their growing maturity and the hope that one day they'll grow up in their faith? Number four, our opportunity to love on the front lines as your people go through crisis and suffering. Now let's think about the way relationships typically work. Person A meets person B. They spend time together. They, they spend more and more time together, and as the relationship builds and the friendship builds, over time they begin to open up and trust one another. And they begin to open up and be honest with one another. And they build a friendship over the course of time. Now consider your job. People show up in your office, and they immediately start sharing deep and difficult things, even though they may not know you all that well. In, in fact, what they do is they show up and they dump the trash of their life on your front yard. And they expect you to clean it up. After all, shepherds do the dirty work, right? So my wife is working on a children's book. Uh, and, and right now, it's, it's the book I've been rooting for for a long time. It's, it's, it's five children and two parents. And, you know, who does that look like? It's our family, in fact. Uh, and every, uh, it, it, think of Pixar and the gospel merged together. Now, she's assigned a different vehicle to every family member. And she, of course, is the fire truck. She puts out fires all day. But what does the counseling pastor daddy get? The garbage truck. Because daddy cleans up everyone's trash. Well, I'm no different than you. People show up in your office and they dump things on you. It's like verbal vomit. They just spew all these things on you. And you're there to clean it all up. There are all kinds of sheep that you help, aren't there? There's the foolish sheep. You've seen Christians make dumb, astoundingly foolish decisions. And you've been there to catch them when they fall or come back bearing the consequences of their foolishness. If I had a penny for every time I prophetically warned a member not to do this, but instead do that, and they didn't listen to me. In those moments, you pray for the heart of the father who took on the shame of the wayward son, rather than the heart of the older brother who trumpeted that shame. 
It is no ex- exaggeration, dear pastor, to say this is exactly what God did for you. He took on a perverted fool and gave him the rich wisdom and righteousness of his son. So, so when the fool walks into your office, remember that God saved me out of my own foolishness. He showed mercy to me. So who am I to act demeaning to this foolish member? Don't ever forget that God showed mercy to you, so you are to show mercy to those who walk in your door. More than a few people, after watching me in counseling, have said, I came here expecting condemnation, not mercy. Now, they're herding sheep, the weak and fragile, who need your tender care. In our church, a sexual offender broke into the house and raped a newlywed wife. Can you just imagine the confusion of the husband? How how could this happen to my wife? Can you imagine what it was like to counsel the wife? Now, this is early in ministry for me, the first few years. And after this happened, the, the, the couple moved in with our executive pastor and his wife. And I was waiting for the call. And a few days later, he said, the executive pastor said, they really would like to see you tonight. So I, I told my wife about the situation, walked out the door, and I stood in front of the executive pastor's house thinking, nobody told me what I'm supposed to do right now. Just nobody has prepared me for this moment. And so I prayed and said, Lord, I don't know what to do, but I know you can help me. And I walked in, and they came down, sat across from me, And we prayed, and I read scripture, and we cried, and we just talked together. And months later, as I met with them weekly for for, for months upon end, she said to me, you know, in that first meeting, there are two things that made the difference. Do you know what they are? I said, no, actually, I don't. (laughs) So tell me. She said, you, 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 you didn't go all over the Bible. You went right to glory. She said, I needed to see the end because right now evil hurts so much. So we went to my favorite text, Revelation 21. We thought about the day when there is no more sin or suffering or sorrow and death. But the other thing she said, which surprised me, said, you looked me in the face. Now, why is that so surprising? because the offender had beaten her. So on that day when I walked in, her face was swollen and she could barely see through her eyes. And she said, everyone who saw me on those next few weeks, no one would look me in the face. It was just the common decency of looking a person in the face and showing respect for them that made her feel like a human being. There's so many other kinds of sheep that we need to help. There are confused sheep who need our guidance. There's wayward sheep who need a stern warning. There's angry sheep who need to grow in control of their fits of rage. And yet every problem, every burden, every struggling sheep that shows up at your door is an opportunity for the gospel to work. Opportunity is the key word there. 
Our, our, our sinful hearts are prone to see problems as problems, as disappointments, as burdens, as obstacles, as frustrations. But every difficulty that shows up at your door is a chance for someone to grow in greater maturity in Christ. It's an opportunity for the kingdom of God to show itself in that moment, in that room, to see that the gospel really does change people, that people can transform right in front of your eyes. And guess what? You get a front row seat. That's the privilege of your job. These foolish sheep, these weak sheep, these confused sheep, these angry sheep show up. And in the front row, you get to see the gospel transform people. Nobody else gets paid to do this, but we do as pastors. We get to see the kingdom transform in front of our eyes. And it's not us. We are able to say, God, this is amazing. This is amazing that I get to be a part of this. So see it as an opportunity. An opportunity to see God work and change people right in front of your eyes. Often sin has so blinded the sheep and dumbed them down that they can't see beyond the boundaries of their problems. But you can. You, you, you see the richness of the gospel and the robustness of what God can do. So you can see beyond the boundaries of their troubles. You know, my favorite job descriptions for a pastor, you're to hold out hope to the hopeless. You're to use every difficult opportunity to reconcile struggling sheep to their God. This is what you are called to do. This is your responsibility. This is how you bring hope to people. Number five, our skills as shepherds. Listening and probing hearts. Now, listening is the most basic thing you can do for herding sheep. Now, forget about that magical moment where in your office the tweetable line comes out of your mouth and the person's trouble just magically go away. You know, you see those scenes in movies or you read about those stories in counseling books, but they don't happen in real life. Or at least they don't happen in my pastoral ministry. Maybe not yours either. No, listening is actually hard work if you really want to work at it. Most of us don't have the patience to really listen to people. Now, the biblical picture of a bad listener is the fool. Listen to these verses. Proverbs 18.2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. Or Proverbs 18.13. If one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. In Proverbs 19.20. Do you see a man who is hasty in his words? There's more hope for a fool than for him. Now, the biblical picture of a fool is one who doesn't listen and understand, but speaks too quickly. He's impulsive and answers before he hears. He doesn't take the time to hear and then speak. 18.2, the fool finds no pleasure, finds pleasure only in saying what he or she wants to say. In 18.13, because of his impulsive speech, he lacks understanding and he's deemed shameful and foolish, or as one commentator said, stupid and a disgrace. Contrast that with James. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, James 1.19. James' encouragement is the exact opposite of the proverbial fool. 
which is to be quick to hear and slow to speak. Now, let's take a test. You ready? Practical application here. How good of a listener are you? I'm going to give you a scale, scale of 1 to 10. 10, you're the best listener in the entire universe. Not just the planet, but the universe. One, you're the worst listener on the planet. Get a number in your mind right now. Get a number in your mind. I'll wait a second. I want you to get a number. Okay, here's what I want you to do with it. If you're married, you're going to turn to your spouse later today, and you're going to say, honey, what number would you give me? <laughs> and if you're humble enough <laughs> the conversation will go something like this honey I rank myself as an 8 why did you rank me as a 3 and what she'll tell you in that moment will make you a better listener what, what The last time my wife and I had this conversation, she said, you've been paying attention to the phone far too long at the dinner table. Oof. Take the knife out of my gut right now. So, you know, we, we established an LSED box. You know what that is? Life-sucking electronic device box. All the phones in our family go in the box before dinner so that they're not a distraction in the evening when we're together as a family, so that we all can work at being better listeners. Now, in addition to listening, get to know someone. In order to get to know someone, you've got to also ask questions. It's a basic skill of shepherding. You're not shopping for just circumstantial details. Ask questions to collect information about a person. is easy. It takes common sense, but most of us can do that fairly easily. Now, you need to get enough details for, about a church member's life to understand the context of their life anytime they come up to you to ask for help about a situation. But there is a danger in this. We are more prone to collect lots of factual data about a person's life instead of asking questions that pursue real depth. Depth questions are heart-oriented questions. They're intrusive. They dig deep. They're like an archaeological dig. I'm trying to unearth the goals and motivations and the fears and the idols and the fear of man that captivates people's hearts. So, you know, you can ask me, where was I born overseas in Bahrain? What year was I born? 1969. Who am I married to? Sarah. You know, how many kids do I have? Five. What do I usually do Saturday mornings? I'm coaching a soccer game for one of my kids. What do I like to watch? NFL football. Okay, you learned a lot about me in that moment, but those are just superficial facts. I could hide behind those facts and not give you what's really in my heart. Now, ask me a question like, what do I worship? What matters to me right now? Like, what sun does my planets revolve around? What gets me up in the morning? What, what, what do I want to do with my life? What are, where are my real hopes and dreams? Oh, ask those questions. We start unearthing the things that I live for, the things that I dream about, the things that I hope for. That's what you're going for. You want people's hearts. 
And you want their hearts to be put on the table so we can earnestly help them. It's not casual conversation. It's like excavation where you unearth a heart. And, you know, if you feel incompetent in this, I'd love to talk to you. If I don't get to talk to you today, email me or call me. I'd love to help you do the work of digging out people's hearts and helping to know what their dreams and fears and hopes and idols are so you can truly shepherd your sheep. Here's my challenge for you. You know, we all have concentric circles of relationships from the the people who are in our innermost circle that we're closest to to the most superficial. And, you know, you have people in your congregation who are hanging out on the fringe, people who are, you know, okay, you know them pretty decently, but not the greatest, and then people you're very close to. Take some of those more superficial relationships, some of those mid-level relationships, and ask them heart-oriented questions. You know, talk about the NFL, make the small talk that we all need to do, but then say, why did you get up today? What are you worshiping today? And a few of them will say, whoa, (laughs) hold on. Let's stick with the NFL. We don't usually go here. (laughs) And in which case, you can just say, okay, just blame it on me. Dr. Deepak told me to do it. (laughs) But, But a few people who live in terminally superficial relationships will offer you their heart. And that's what we want. So my challenge to you is to ask some more heart-probing questions in relationships that can shift if you're willing to go there. Number six, the bigger picture, a culture of discipling and care. Sheep have an extraordinary ability to consume your time. Are you proactive in raising up elders and leaders among you, or do you spend most of your time in a defensive posture, simply putting out pastoral fires? Be very wary of letting the burdens of hurting and angry and confused sheep excessively fall on your shoulders alone. Just don't do that. Don't bear the responsibility all by yourself. You do a disservice to them, but also to others because you deny people within your church You deny other elders, you deny mature people the opportunity to love on these people when you take it all to yourself. You know that God has designed the church as a key institution to advance his kingdom. And we're not meant to to do this all by ourselves. Individual Christianity is an anathema. It just should never exist. We're all meant for a community to be in a local church with a body of believers. So when I establish discipling and investment in other people's lives as a priority in our church, I tell people, this is what it means to be in our church. You know, we use a church covenant when you're in our membership interview. And when people sign that covenant, I expect that they're signing away isolation. That's what it means to be a part of our congregation. So we establish on the front end, this is what it means to be in this church. So we had a young guy who would come in after the first song and he would leave during the final song every week. And he did this for weeks and he did it in the balcony and I could tell because we sit right across from where he would come in. And I watched this week after week after week and after a few weeks, members started to notice and they started to catch him on the way out the door and they started to invite him to lunch And they started to get involved in his life. And they started to encourage him to join the church. 
And then he finally became a member and got more involved. And uh, a couple of months later, he said to me, this is a really hard place to be an anonymous Christian. Well, that's exactly right. I want a culture of discipling. You know what I mean by culture? It's the whole DNA of the congregation to make and shepherd disciples. It's not just a program. This is what the church does. Every member understands it's a responsibility to disciple others and be discipled. Not because it's a program that the pastor came up with, but because it's in the word. So if I get hit by a bus walking out in the street, I hope that my members will do this until they die. Not because I taught it to them, but because they saw it in the scriptures. No matter what church they go to, they understand their responsibility to be invested in other members. We want a culture of discipling. Well, why is that? Well, you know, when people show up in my office, usually because of their, their sin and their suffering, what I want is not for us to suddenly have to move people around into their life. Long before they show up in a season of suffering, I want them to have done the hard work so that when they hit that difficult season, that relational and spiritual safety net is already there to catch them. So they need to do the hard work now. Now, there's a lot of places in Scripture I can defend this point, but the easiest place to go is the one another text. Just listen to these texts. John chapter 13, a new command I give you, love one another as I've loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Romans chapter 12, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans chapter 13, let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another, for he who loves his fellow man has fulfilled the law. Romans chapter 15, accept one another then, just as Christ has accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. Romans chapter 15 again. I myself am convinced, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, complete in knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. Ephesians chapter 4. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Ephesians chapter 4 again. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. And then 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as, in fact, you are doing. What are these verses speaking of? They're speaking to Christians, and the general direction is to oblige Christians to love one another, be devoted to each other, to honor one another, accept each other, be patient, be kind, be compassionate, forgive, and even to instruct one another. So it's not pastors to members, but it's, Christians relating to other Christians. That's what these texts are talking about. So as you can tell, it's a priority for the whole church. It's a responsibility of every member. So when I say culture, I don't want it to be a program. I want it to be something that's written into the DNA of our church. Your members don't have to sign up anywhere or join a program in order to love one another. So, Pastor, you are the primary culture shaper of your church. What you say, what you teach, how you live, shapes the culture in your congregation. 
Are you holding this out as a primary value for your church? Now, just imagine, you don't have to bear the burdens of hurting members alone. You can raise up an entire church where the members want to be invested in one another. So one of the the hardest situations I dealt with in 15 years was a young lady who had made multiple attempts on her life for suicide. And as I rushed to the hospital after the second or third attempt, it was my delight to see that two single women had beaten me there. So when it came to suicide, what did they do? They didn't back away from that dreadful word, but because it was a close friend, they rushed to the hospital and said, I want to be involved. I don't have a degree. I'm not a pastor. I'm not any kind of professional. I want to be involved. You know what a joy that is as a pastor? To see the the members, the everyday normal members on the front lines of your church. Number seven, our perseverance, making it to the end. To the weary shepherd, some of you are tired, are drained, are sad, are confused, and discouraged. A few of you are hanging on by a thread. Some of you have weathered enormous storms. I'm speaking to you. Don't give up. Your Savior is great. Your circumstances are hard. Your suffering is painful. Your spouse and children are struggling. But Jesus knows. Remarkable that scripture says, O man, greatly loved, fear not, be strong and of good courage. Your God is great, not small. Your Savior is strong, not weak. Your God is mighty and holy and glorious, and you, you, he will not abandon you. Oh, dear shepherd, hold on. Now, you are a sheep, not just a shepherd. You need the grace of God that you preach every Sunday. You need a word for your own soul's sake. So I like Mike Emlett's phrase, we are never to simply traffic in the truth. Every time you prepare a message, pray that the Lord would bring that message to your own heart because you need that same gospel message. Otherwise, you're not going to make it. It's far too common to have days when you said, God, really? Do I have to deal with this? Do you know how many messes I've had to take on? Do you know how hard this season has been? Do you know how many years of toil I've had to put up with? The burdens are overwhelming. The demands are hard. The pressure is relentless. And the the, the pastor burns too many men out. What do I want? I want 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 years from now, we're all standing together. I don't want to. I don't, I don't want to peter out. I want to make it to the end and be faithful. So keep your eyes set on heaven. Be faithful. Keep praying. Keep laboring. Because our God is great and our Savior is strong. So the seven things. Number one, Jesus condescended to us and sympathized with us. So also we should initiate 
just like he did. Number two, our responsibility is to shepherd God's flock. Number three, our goal is to see our members mature in Christ. Number four, our opportunity is to love the foolish and the hurting sheep. Number five is to grow our skill as shepherds as we listen and probe hearts. Number six, the bigger picture, we want to see a culture of discipling and care in our churches. And number seven, we persevere by remembering we too are sheep in need of God's grace. Your labor as an under-shepherd is for the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus. Shepherding is hard, but it's a joyous labor. It's challenging and difficult, but it's an immense privilege. Glory be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, we recognize that we are simply under-shepherds and that you are the chief shepherd and that you've given us this immense privilege. Glory be to you, God. Thank you for using us as instruments in your hand. We pray in your son's name. Amen.